Welcome to another episode of Tools, Talents, and Techniques. I'm your host, Dustin Sutton, and today we are honored to have a distinguished guest with us who's a, a real estate executive and he's a prop tech thought leader, Mr. John H. Jones, will be joining us. John is recognized as a leading mind in prop tech, which is property technology, and his work has been featured in numerous articles exploring the convergence of real estate and the future of work. So that includes artificial intelligence and other modes of modernization. But beyond his expertise in real estate, John has a very rich political background, and he has played key roles in successful national and state campaigns. He previously served as chief of staff to a U.S. congressman, and during his tenure, John led a groundbreaking uh, congressional investigation of the fintech and online lending industry, and he was able to uncover potential biases in lending practices driven by algorithms and artificial intelligence. So we talk about this uh, and his experience and how all these experiences have launched or catapulted him into the forefront of experts who understand the intersection of finance, real estate, and technology. So John's unique insights are shaped by a global perspective. We talk a little bit about that. Um, he holds a, an MBA from the University of Minnesota. He has dual master's degrees in diplomacy and international relations and corporate and public communications from Seton Hall University, as well as a, a bachelor's degree from Clark Atlanta University. So this was a, an interview and a conversation that I was really looking forward to, and it did not disappoint me at all. And I'm, I'm very excited to, to share this conversation with our listeners. So I hope that you're ready to enjoy a great conversation as we explore the realms of real estate, technology, politics, and beyond with Mr. John Jones. Mr. John Jones, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Dustin, and hello to you, and hello to all your faithful listeners. Glad to be here today. I there's so many things I want to cover today with all the things that you're doing and what you've done. But before we get going, can you just introduce yourself and just a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. John Jones. I'm based in Washington, D.C. I'm the senior vice president for NAREIT, National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust. NAREIT is the trade association for REITs and publicly held real estate companies. I worked with NAREIT for five years. Prior to that, I worked 15 years as a uh, government worker working on Capitol Hill as a national security director in the United States Senate and closed out my career uh, for five years as a chief of staff to United States House of Representatives member. As I mentioned, I've been really excited about this conversation and for a variety of reasons. And when you look at your career trajectory and the things that you've done, I would like to cover as many of them as we can, just at least so we get um, maybe not a linear, but we get the full picture of how you got here. But I would like to start with where, where did you where did you grow up? Where did you spend your your formative years? I grew up in the New York, New Jersey area, in uh, central North New Jersey, about 30 miles outside of New York City. And I lived there uh, when I was born until I left uh, to attend university. 
when you were, did you, did you play any sports? Were you active in the community, uh, middle school, high school? So I primarily played football in middle school and in high school as well. I played one year of college football. Though when I got to college, I realized everybody on the team was faster and quicker. So that's when I decided to pick up the books. So that's, that's smart. Smart to pivot there if you make, make the realization. Well, most importantly, faster, quicker, but bigger as well. So that's when I really decided to pick up the books. Yeah, yeah well, that's what I was going to say, especially when they're bigger and, and it's it's painful to do it. Correct. So what when you were going to college, did you already have an idea of what you wanted to study? Did you go in with a major or was it just, you know, you'll figure it out? Well, I, I had a focus on uh, criminal justice. I thought I wanted to work in law enforcement. And uh, that was my focus uh, for the four years in college. Then I became more uh, interested in political science, spent time studying abroad at the University of West London in England, and became more politically aware, more conscious of the importance and value of international relations and diplomacy. So after graduating with a degree in criminal justice, I knew that my advanced degree I would focus on international relations. And that's what I went on to attend Seton Hall University. And I did a completed a dual master's program there. First degree was a master's in diplomacy and international relations. And the second was a master's degree in corporate and public communications. What was it about that time or that experience that you, that the light bulb went off and said, oh, I want to, I want to go this way instead. Was there anybody in particular that, that you looked to or an experience that you had? Well, I would say the experience being abroad at a young age, 19 years old, and really valuing the opportunity that existed back in the United States. Whereas I saw so many persons from around the world, Africa, the Caribbean, and Asia, who I met in London, were working in university or studying in university or outside the university. And many of them had left their families uh, to come to a country that they knew very little about. And many regards felt like, like strangers in this land, but I saw the hunger and determination. And it made me even more grateful for all of the opportunities, notwithstanding the challenges um, that remain in America to, to, to this day. I realized the great opportunities and appreciated even more the opportunities that uh, existed in the United States. So when I came back, I was very, even more determined than I was uh, prior to leaving to accomplish as many goals as possible and to have a plan and to be driven. Mm. Was it, was that experience doing study abroad? Was that your first time traveling? I had traveled, uh, bit as a minor, but in terms of leaving uh, the country and leaving and, you know, crossing an ocean, that was the first time I actually had spent a considerable amount of time abroad. Yeah. And I imagine doing that at that age, you know, at a, at a formidable age that you're, you're seeing things through a different lens and 
seeing that experience anew, right? You're you're getting that perspective. So what, once you once you realize this, and that's that's your path, you know, that's the next step that you were going to take. Uh, can you walk us through that decision making process and and how you pick the school and and the initiative that you're going to take behind the next step? Sure. I was grateful to attend a historically black college and university, Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta, Georgia, with a rich history. The value for me personally going to an HBCU is that you really come out with the understanding of empowerment. Um, Basically understanding that it is very important to have as much control and impact over your immediate environment as much as possible because that will directly be correlated to what the outcomes of your productivity uh, happen to be. And I can't say enough how value that ex- how valuable that experience was attending an HBCU. I haven't completed my undergraduate study and that I've knew that I wanted to get a better understanding of the uh, the global transitioning that the world was going into. This was uh, 2001, then the rise of the internet, the rise of the software economy. The world was actually getting smaller and flatter, so to speak. So with the technological technological change that was happening in the world, to agree the political change, Well, at the same time, the economic change, I felt that I wanted to pursue studies that were more global in nature. And that is what brought me to the Seton Hall School of Diplomacy. And in conjunction with that, I always was uh, impressed and to a degree enamored with the spoken word and the value of communicating effectively. And that led me to understand, too, that it's important to get a political education while at the same time I wanted to, to get a get a in education that was also economic and business based. So that's why I did uh, the, the dual degree program, which were both incredibly helpful to my career in this professional development. Was there was there anything that you from your experience prior from you know high school growing up that you thought there were talents that you had or skills that would be applicable there? Because you mentioned spoken word, but you also are talking about business and you know, were you proficient in a certain thing over another? Like, was was it math or was it reading or was there anything that stood out as far as your strengths? I spent a lot of time reading and studying history. In my undergraduate program, I was completing my criminal justice reading requirements, but my apartment that I lived in was littered with history books books on uh, military strategy, books on famous battles. So I spent a lot of time studying strategy, uh, history, and uh, military warfare, whether it was uh, Sun Tzu, Art of War, uh, a great military strategist uh, and thinker, Carl von Clausewitz. Um, I read a lot of uh, books about uh, Otto von Bismarck of Germany, uh, Frederick the Great. I spent a lot of time reading and studying Napoleon. I spent a lot of time reading his thoughts on uh, 
um, the steps you take in confrontation or to avoid confrontation. Uh, Hannibal of Carthage read a lot about him, uh, read a lot about uh, Roman civilization, Egyptian civilization, um, conquerors such as Mansa Musa. And it wasn't just for the military aspect of studying them, but it was also for the organizational uh, aspect and how that could be applicable to running a business, a corporation, a department uh, effectively. Well, so that that's interesting that you, you bring that up because one of the things that actually my wife and I were talking about the other day about sometimes you can read something or experience something at a different period in your life and you can see it completely differently or take something from it and say, oh, that's, I, I, I knew what it meant then to in my life, but this is what, is there anything that, that you now looking back on that, that you use in maybe not your daily life, but something specific that jumps out from, from one of those, those books or those, those, those authors, those historical personas that, that you carry with you on the daily? Sure. You know, um, one thing I can appreciate um, is a quote uh, from Hannibal Carthage and his, you know, for the readers that aren't aware of him, he was a, a great Carthaginian general uh, whose father was a great general and who uh, died in conflict uh, with the Roman Empire became a general at 26 upon the death of his father and he took uh, his battalion through Spain uh, through what is now France and Switzerland, northern Italy and literally brought elephants through um, the Swiss Alps and the mountains of Italy and occupied uh, large parts of the Italian peninsula for 15 years. But he had a great quote um, and where he said, if we cannot find a way, we will make a way. And uh, that is something that stays with me uh, to this day when facing challenges or facing obstacles. I'm a father of a 12-year-old son. It's an affirmation that I've embedded in him uh, since he was a, a little one. And that is definitely the quote that sticks with me the most. If we cannot find a way, we will make a way. Yeah, that that's great. That's fantastic. And I, I love the the spirit of that and overcoming challenge, you know, obstacles, facing challenges and having the grit, determination and the creativity. I think you alluded to that too about some of those great minds and how to strategize and how to make that that next move. And you know, that makes a lot of sense uh and, and as I'm as we're talking about this and, and and I see your career and how you've you've woven a couple things together that I don't. I don't want to necessarily um, skip parts of, of what you what you've done, how, but I want to lay out three things that that I've seen here, and then maybe you can just take it from there and tell me how you've been able to weave these things together. You you you're working in politics, but then also there's a real estate component and a technology component. So 
those three things jump out to me of like, well, wow, like you, you are an expert in these three areas that I see it from my perspective, from my lens are so impactful at, in just about every facet of human life. Right. And the, like right now in the modern day, the real estate, the, the politics and the technology, can you talk about how you were able to, to strategize and craft these together? Like, what was that journey like? Sure. Great and question. I, and, well, I know that's a kind of a big question. It's like, how did you do this? How did yeah, you do all sure. of this? But, but it is really impressive. And, and I'm, I am very intrigued in seeing how it all came together. Look, you'll talk to people about, uh, certain goals they may have accomplished or what they've become. What many people don't mention is that sometimes it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time, but also seizing the opportunity that's in front of you. What happened in my case is that every member of Congress that I worked for by chance happened to be members of either the House Financial Services Committee or the Senate Banking Committee. Mm. And what that brought for me was a unique understanding of the financial regulatory framework in the United States. Also, because I worked on economic sanctions legislation, I obtained an understanding of how the international financial banking regulatory framework uh, operated. And with that, I having served as a chief of staff, worked on political campaigns, I had a good understanding of what it meant to run a campaign, um, plan a communications operation. I was also the communications director as well as the chief of staff when I worked in the House of Representatives. So I had a policy understanding, a political understanding, and a communications understanding of the issues at hand. In addition to being uh, a chief of staff, I also spent a lot of time uh, working as a policy expert. And the expertise that I developed was on what was then was in what was then a kind of a nascent uh, field or sector, and it was fintech, short for financial technology. And back in 2015. This was a, still a very new technology in terms of it being understood in the media, understood by customers, though, you know, fintech had been around as long as wireless banking was around. Right. Uh, I saw what was happening with this new technology that had a lot of had an awesome amount of potential. But there were some challenges and the challenges that I saw were in the realm of algorithmic bias. Whereas, you know, computers and software that are made by people 
would take in some of the unconscious bias that may be exhibited. And we saw this uh, through evidence, whether it was in facial recognition, not being able to recognize uh, African or darker features or misidentifying uh, persons who were black and customers with someone who may have been, um, you know, had a mugshot online and stuff like that. And looking addition, and additionally, I saw that women and minority entrepreneurs seeking business loans were, according to the evidence, being charged higher interest rates, some in part to uh, where their zip code was. If they lived in a neighborhood with uh, a higher amount of arrest, uh, if they you know, lived in a community where the corner store or convenience store had bulletproof glass, that in part by software could be correlated to say, well, this loan applicant uh, is going to be a risky applicant. So therefore, uh, the loan has higher risk. So therefore, the interest rate would be higher. So what I did was launch the uh, under this was back in 2017, what I did was uh, launch a congressional investigation uh, into the fintech industry to determine uh, what mechanisms could be utilized to prevent this activity. But first we had to uncover the activity and many of the businesses were very upfront in providing the information that we requested. And in doing so, we were able to put out a number of recommendations um, that really helped in terms of steering the industry in a better direction where it could be more conscious of some of the obstacles that uh, existed and what they could do to mitigate that. And uh, that led me to decide to go back to school to get my master's in business administration, my MBA at the University of Minnesota Carlson School at night where I was able to focus on the areas, focus on the areas of, of fintech as well as real estate finance. And then what was then a, again, another nascent industry, uh, prop tech, which is the intersection of uh, real estate and technology, prop tech being short for property technology. So be, before, before we jump there, I want to ask a question about that experience that you had when you're saying, you're like, wow, there, there's, there's, there's so much here uh, in fintech and where it can go and then the opportunities. And you start to notice these things without getting, you know, I, I'm not asking for the secret sauce or the inside baseball, but was there, were, when you brought this up, was there, was did that fall on uh, an audience that said, yeah, you're, you're right. Or was it hard to talk people into seeing what you were, what you were experiencing or what, or what you were saying? Like what, what was the reception like from you bringing that up? It was a great question. Look, if I was just somebody who was tweeting from my basement about this issue, it's doubt that I would have had an impact, but I was a chief of staff for a United States member of Congress who served on the financial services committee. And under his uh, permission, I was tasked with spearheading this investigation. So the United States of Congress, when you remember Congress, it's a tremendous bully pulpit. And mm -hmm. people 
if asked to come into a meeting, uh, they generally come in, especially if it's a business uh, or a firm under the purview of uh, the members assigned committee. And so I say that to say I knew that businesses, for the most part, would take my call if asked they would come in. But in terms of them uh, cooperating, I had to demonstrate that this wasn't some type of gotcha effort, Mm -hmm. whereas I was looking specifically at ways in which this industry can make changes that would be beneficial to the firms, beneficial to the consumers, but also beneficial to the market. And at the end, though, not all of the firms uh, agreed with 100% of the recommendations. The majority of the recommendations were taken seriously and they understood that what they viewed me as in their words was a straight shooter, uh, Mm. someone who they could work with and who um, was good at number one, representing the interests of the member I worked for, understanding the value of consumer advocacy, while at the same time was a fair partner to uh, leaders in industry. I think you touched on a couple of really important points there and how you conveyed that message, right? Like, yeah, like you, you work, you work at and lead an office that if you say, Hey, come, come to this meeting, like they're going to come, but delivering that information and the message of what you're trying to do in a way that we're all on the same team and we're trying to work together. This is good for everybody. Did you, is that, is that a skill that you felt like you had for a long time or was that something that you really developed in certain areas of your, of your life and your career? Well, I've always worked, uh, I have a family that is diverse, ethnically, racially, regionally, and I've always had the value of understanding that opportunities of talking to people who are different from me, whether different from how they look, different from where they're born, different from where they're from, the work that they do. So I have been fortunate to to have a good memory insofar as to remember to try to look at every issue from a perspective other than my own. And if you could look at a challenge from another person's perspective, then it's easier to get to a resolution. And any room that I'm walking into, I don't sacrifice my values. I don't sacrifice my principles, but I will also uh, never sacrifice a good compromise. And that was something that I was always laser focused on in the gatherings and rooms. Oh, that's, that's weird. I love that. The never sacrifice a good compromise. Uh, I like that a lot. Um, okay. So, sorry, I digress. I, I, I kind of pulled you back a little bit. When you went, you went back to school and you want to focus on, on, um, on prop tech as your, your area. Can you talk about that and how you made that decision? And, and if there were any specific instances that you were like, Oh, this is why I think this is, the future and why it needs attention. Sure. I 
while still on Capitol Hill, I started to write an article about the impact of blockchain. And basically the article, the premise was cryptocurrency is a fad. This is back in 2018. Cryptocurrency is a fad, but blockchain would be and is a game changer. And in so far as looking at that issue of blockchain and crypto, I felt that what was happening was, is that, you know, there was this public fascination with cryptocurrency and a lot of people were losing sight of what was one of the most potentially uh, transformation, transformational emerging technologies. And that was blockchain. But blockchain, like, was even seen as more nebulous as a cryptocurrency, but is a technology that it's used by businesses to facilitate the exchange of information, services, goods, and payments. And the uh, potential was just immense. And I saw that, you know, investors and observers were focused on the ups and downs of crypto and Bitcoin specifically at the time. Many missed uh, missing, including investors, the groundbreaking and unprecedented innovation that uh, blockchain technology was releasing on the market. And uh, blockchain at the time was contributing to the, and still is to the transformation and fueling of innovations. And one of which was PropTech, which was a byproduct of FinTech, which utilizes emerging technologies like blockchain to enhance the experience behind managing, investing, and operating real estate and property, whether you're looking at, you know, smart contracting or uh, digital ledgers etched in stone, these type of issues I felt were being ignored, notwithstanding the groundbreaking, unprecedented uh, impact of real estate innovation and technology PropTech. I wanted to focus on this area because real estate was basically, has been the last sector to take in or adapt to technological or innovation. I thought that the change that was happening would be better implemented if more investors, users, landlords, and tenants had an understanding of it. And that was my goal while seeking, uh, while writing an article on cryptocurrency and uh, blockchain to sum it up. That led me to PropTech, which I saw as very transformational, but very few people knew anything about. I wanted to become a thought leader in that realm to help explain why the impact of technology and emerging technologies on real estate was important and 
why we need more people and explaining it in an everyday common sense type of way. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot to unpack with, with that, but I want to share something with you that uh, I, I don't, I don't believe I've mentioned this, this before, but um, one of the things that I've realized and in my, in my career, you know, I, I doing starting out like leasing and then property management and, you know, I'm actually doing the work and I feel like for a long time, the, because values just tend to go up and up and up and up, people didn't have to have to fix things or make them more efficient or have to, you know, really pay attention to the minutia uh, and the details. But me, as, as somebody who's working in the industry, I was always like doing the work at the ground level. I was constantly saying like, why can't we, why is this so hard? why can't we do this faster or why can't, isn't there an app for this? Like, isn't there a, a software that can do whatever it is, whether it's inspections, uh, whether it's budgeting report, like all those things. And so for me, I was getting so frustrated because I'm you know, talking to the, the, the managers and my supervisors throughout the years. I'm like, can't we try something else or do this? And it always seemed to fall on deaf ears because the expression uh, if it ain't if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But if it's broken, but people that are making a lot of money are still making a lot of money, it's like, do they fix it? And, and so it's hard to like make that argument. But now I think we're in a place because there's so much going on in the market and, and real estate and basically all financial markets for the most part is that and the technology has come so far that people are really like, all right, now we need to find a way to, to fix all this. And, and so I, I just think you're, you're, you're right on, you're right on time with a lot of the stuff that, that you're talking about and, and what you're, what you're expressing. Um, so, so one of the things you mentioned about, about blockchain and, and you seeing that and saying, Oh, there, there's something here. You, you, I take you as somebody who learns a lot of different ways. Like you can, you can read something and understand it. Um, you can actually, you know, talk to people and, and communicate effectively to, to get the understanding. How long do you think it took you to understand not only the impact of blockchain, but really how it, how it all works? Does that make sense as far as, you know, because a lot of times people are scared of things that they don't understand, right? And they're like, oh, blockchain, I know it's a thing, but I don't want to touch it because I don't understand it. But for you to, to be like, oh, wait, no. Sorry, you're going in and out a bit. Okay, can you hear me now? I, yeah, I can hear you now. Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. You, yeah. Do you, how long did it take you to understand blockchain as a technology and its impact. Because one thing to say, like, oh, this is neat. It's another thing to say, oh, yeah, like this, it, because it works like this, this is where I see its impact. Uh, how, how did how did you um, wrap your, was it talking to people? Was it was it reading about it? I, what, how did you formulate your, your thought process around it? It's very interesting. You know, I spent a lot of time reading about, the topic, talking to people about the topic, as well as listening to academic lectures about the topic, where you have to listen at times for like an hour to really 
pull out some of the nuggets, but I also would just go back to the foundation and in terms of how, what this impact was in, in the simplest terms. And I said to myself, reminded myself, uh, blockchain technology is just a, it's a simple but sophisticated ledger that eliminates intermediaries. A mm. virtually unhackable system with information etched into stone designed to prevent fraud while providing a complete history of every single transaction. Looking at it within the realm of real estate, the potential was vast because this technology could be applied to smart contracts, public records, ledgers of ownership, titles, and then other parts of the transactions within real estate that can be seen as overburdensome, outdated, and truly capital intensive. So with that, I was able to explain to readers and to listeners, most importantly, how blockchain technology could be used to streamline a process that they were a part of, either as an owner, investor, landlord, tenant, or user. And in conjunction with that, for the benefit of how this technology could could be used to benefit an investor's bottom line. Are there any companies that you see, and I don't know how much you can share about this, but, um, you know, so share whatever you can. Uh, Any companies or technologies that, you know, a company that's like, oh, they're doing it right. Or they're using, they're doing everything they can to implement these technologies or a certain technology that is like, this is going to be the future. Is there anything that stands out to you? Sure. There are so many incumbents in real estate that are utilizing this technology. I can't name names just because I don't want to be accused of picking winners and losers. Uh, But I would, I, I would say, and look, it's not just in, blockchain. It's also in um, AI, artificial technology, uh, what companies are doing in so far as the future of work, other emerging technologies. Uh, But the big question that companies are asking themselves is this. Do we look to find the next emerging technologies of tomorrow that will impact built spaces that we either own or operate? Or do we invest in venture capital that will 
through partnerships, uncover the next technologies that will impact the future of built spaces tomorrow. The benefit of doing it in-house is that you you control the information. Mm -hmm. Uh, You will have a degree of control over the innovation and the technology. While at the same time, you're spending more time and resources having to weed out what doesn't work or at least won't be applicable to uh, your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Some have decided to keep this research, development, and investment in-house, while some have decided to uh, put those resources uh, into VC, uh, venture capital firms, and to engage in partnerships that will be beneficial to the bottom line, to their bottom line. And that that's the question, while some are actually doing both uh, to their benefit. Yeah, so you know, that's, that... going, that's going to be the question going future. Do you do this in-house, the technology, the innovation, the emergent technological research? Is it done under your roof or do you invest in venture capital firms and let them do it and work in partnerships with them? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I, that, I didn't, I guess I wasn't, <laughs> I guess I, that was like, uh, an overarching answer of like, I'm like, who's using what technology? You're like, no, the question is, do you use technology or do you buy the companies that own the technology? <laughs> like, so that's a, uh, yeah, that, that's a boss answer. That was, that's big. Um, and, and also one of the things that I, that I understand is that some of these, some of these companies are, are at a certain size and, it takes a lot and there's a lot of red tape for, for good reason. And it's hard to make macro changes um, at a company to how you do your, your processes. And, you know, when emerging technologies are coming about, how do you really dive deep and figure out which ones are going to make the biggest impact? So I'm sure that, you know, that decision making process isn't as easy as, Oh, that looks cool. Let's go. Let's go see if it works. Sure. Um, One example. Oh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, well, no, I guess I guess my 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 further question to that, and and I completely understand, like not you know picking winners and losers, but it is comforting to know, or at least um, it makes me optimistic to hear somebody that's in your position that that is thinking about these things and places importance on them, and that the people that you're associated with are making these decisions and how to make things better and how to, how to fix things, how to make things more efficient. Um, yeah, it's just, it, that's just really good to, to get that feedback from you. Sure. Look, um, and to be specific, when you talk about what companies are using, which particular emergent technologies, I can talk about, while not naming names, um, office building companies with the end of the pandemic and work from home starting to recede in certain places in the Sun Belt, for the most part, people are back in the office and places such as San Francisco, large numbers of them are still working from home 
And in New York, uh, work from home numbers have crept down a little bit, but office uh, vacancy uh, still has a ways to go. Nonetheless, in a post-COVID pandemic world, we hope, the value of health, physical health, mental health, uh, emotional health in an office has uh, risen in priority for workers. Environmental factors and indoor air quality within buildings are important because people are more conscious of it. Uh, For over a decade, it's been a known fact that environmental factors can impact cognitive functions and cognitive functions impact productivity. The EPA estimated that adverse health and productivity effects from poor indoor air quality cost companies between, get this, $13 billion and $32 billion annually. There was a Harvest study some time ago that found that office air quality could have significant Uh, effects on an employee's cognitive function, including response time and their ability to focus. Uh, So CO2 buildup is one reason that workers become sleepy late in the day uh, around 3, 4 p.m. It's not just because of that that big lunch. So because we spend 70 to 80 (laughs) percent of our times indoor, uh, air filtration matters a lot from a productivity perspective and a health perspective. And more companies have invested in air filtration technology uh, for the point of having healthier buildings and a healthier workforce. And they can correlate this to this impact in productivity, which in many cases leads to a better bottom line. And that's the goal of PropTech for real estate investors and operators and owners who are conscious of it. And that's to simplify the process, increase efficiencies, and most importantly, drive profitability. And when you can correlate and connect the benefits of implementing implementing emerging technologies, the reception to adapting, even considering these new technologies, tend to be just a bit more positive. Yeah, you know, I love that on on so many levels. And one of the things that having that data that can be used in showing one, how do you how do you collect the data? How do you get the information? How do you interpret the information? And then how do you how do you execute? How do you implement the results of that information? And I, I was talking to one of my friends yesterday who works at a life science company, and he said something, um, which I, actually I don't know if it's the tagline for his company. It's just something he really felt. He said, you know, the the per- the build space for people to do things that are great. You know, and that's the whole purpose of of especially commercial real estate, whether it's life science, or it's office. So people are in a safe, comfortable place 
for them to perform and do great things. And using these tools to your point and the prop tech, how do you optimize that? How do you, how do you make it the most optimal environment for people to do that? So yeah, you, you're preaching to the choir. I, uh, I love, I love it all. I love it all. And it's so fun to see all the, all the new technologies and see how novel things are that people come up with and, and how they impact people's lives. And to, and again, to your point, the bottom line. Sure. So I, I want to be mindful of your time here. And I know we, we only have a couple minutes left. Is there, is there anything that you're working on or that you're working towards something that, that you want to share with the listeners? Um, and I say further, further from that, is there anything else from your journey that, you know, lessons that you've learned or things that you've realized that if you could go back and tell uh, your younger self, like, Hey, look at, look out for this. Like any, anything like that, that you want to share? Sure. Um, it's important looking back to definitely have your goals while at the same time, enjoy the journey because the journey will also impact your quality of life later on. Reaching the goal is great. It's a great feeling. It's a great feeling of accomplishment. Well, at the same time, there are life moments that you don't want to miss, that you always want to prioritize. And in particular, those moments generally involve family and the friends that are family as well. I love that. Was there, is there anything that in your journey that you had an experience that was challenging, but looking back on it, you're like, you know what? I, I learned a lot from that, or, you know, I took this from that. So maybe I, I should have spent less time worrying and, and more time just being in that moment. Well, I, look at every moment, whether positive or negative, as a moment that I have learned from and has brought me to where I am today. And in particular, I can look back at, mo look back at moments that have led me to say, well, how would I do something differently in the future? Or looking at a particular issue, how would I make it better, more productive? So when I talk to real estate developers and those involved in development in urban spaces, I speak to my real estate 2025 plan, which stands on three pillars designed to build a stronger future through profitability, innovation, and empowered communities. And that means increasing profitability for individual as well as institutional investors, utilizing innovation and data to enhance safety and promote community while creating empowered communities of common values and shared interests for real estate and users. Um, whereas success is defined by the normalization of urban core real estate development initiatives that prioritize profitability, innovation, along with empowered communities. And that's 
profitability. You're dealing with the devastating impacts of nimbium, nimbyism, not in my backyard, thinking on affordable housing mm-hmm. and how we can combat that while enhancing development opportunities for black investors, black residents, and black entrepreneurs. Uh, these opportunities can't be made available if bureaucratic red tape at the municipal level make it impossible to develop or build affordable homes in communities where transportation and economic opportunities are accessible. Innovation, the utilization of innovation and data to enhance safety and to promote community. Increasing home security and public safety through biometric technology. Focusing on sustainable, walkable, and interconnected communities hybrid offices and workspaces, high-speed broadband, healthier supermarkets, vertical logistical or warehouse facilities. So what can be accessed locally can be delivered in a timely manner, enhancing home and property appraisal and empowering communities. I've given presentations that talked about, focused on engaging the Black visual arts community when it comes to urban real estate development. At a minimum, the African-American visual art market is worth a billion of dollars in the US. Mm-hmm. I'll say that again. At a minimum, the African-American visual art market is worth over a billion dollars in the United States. So it's essential to engage the community of black artists, curators, designers, patrons, investors, and collectors to ensure we are designing communities that are not just aesthetically satisfying, but to ensure that we are renovating and repurposing aging spaces with character designs that are inspiring, uplifting, and most importantly, historically and culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that is uh, a priority for me in my discussions with developers as well as investors, because we need a real estate 2025 plan that prioritizes profitability, but also, again, empowered communities. Empowered, we need a real estate 2025 plan that prioritizes profitability, while at the same time prioritizes innovation, and most importantly, empowered communities. And there are certain ways to get there, and I believe we will get there, uh, because the end goal is financial empowerment and the pathway to financial empowerment in so many ways is through real estate investment. Well, those those things that you, you just mentioned, the profitability, the innovation, and uh, the community empowerment, uh, there, there's, there's so much when it comes to the holistic view of, of what, what, a, what a community means, like what business means, and, and how innovation ties all these things together. So I, I just think it's, it's so important that I want to just reiterate what you said and, and stress that because in silos, profitability and innovation, they're, they're not going to make the maximum impact. But when you start to, you know open up the lines of communication 
and everyone understands how important each one is to the greater mission, the holistic goal of that empowering communities. Uh, you know, like that, that's, that's where, that's where the magic happens. And I, I just, I think we're, we're really fortunate to have someone like you at the, at the helm, you know, really pushing for this and, and opening those doors and, and bringing people together. So I, I thank you for that. And I congratulate you on all your, all your success. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners. I'm a listener to the tools, talents, and techniques podcast. <laughs> I'm very honored to be on and speaking with you, Dustin, and your audience today. It's been yeah, that, a wonderful and, pleasure. Well, well, and thank you. Because one of the things, and, and I, I said this, I mentioned this before, and I'll, I'll say it to the listeners, um, you know, all the things that, that John is doing is something that, that I follow, that I, that I, you know, admire in, in many ways. So, so getting, being able to share this time and, and talk about these topics that are, I know are important to me and important to you uh, is, is very special. So, so thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Welcome to another episode of Tools, Talents, and Techniques. I'm your host, Dustin Sutton, and today we are honored to have a distinguished guest with us who's a, a real estate executive and he's a prop tech thought leader, Mr. John H. Jones, will be joining us. John is recognized as a leading mind in prop tech, which is property technology, and his work has been featured in numerous articles exploring the convergence of real estate and the future of work. So that includes artificial intelligence and other modes of modernization. But beyond his expertise in real estate, John has a very rich political background, and he has played key roles in successful national and state campaigns. He previously served as chief of staff to a U.S. congressman, and during his tenure, John led a groundbreaking uh, congressional investigation of the fintech and online lending industry, and he was able to uncover potential biases in lending practices driven by algorithms and artificial intelligence. So we talk about this uh, and his experience and how all these experiences have launched or catapulted him into the forefront of experts who understand the intersection of finance, real estate, and technology. So John's unique insights are shaped by a global perspective. We talk a little bit about that. Um, he holds a, an MBA from the University of Minnesota. He has dual master's degrees in diplomacy and international relations and corporate and public communications from Seton Hall University, as well as a, a bachelor's degree from Clark Atlanta University. So this was a, an interview and a conversation that I was really looking forward to, and it did not disappoint me at all. And I'm, I'm very excited to, to share this conversation with our listeners. So I hope that you're ready to enjoy a great conversation as we explore the realms of real estate, technology, politics, and beyond with Mr. John Jones. 